Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. Uh, before we get started, I want to just kind of uh, share something about uh, how God spoke to my heart this week and uh, on this particular lesson. But I was thinking, uh, many, all of us know about Job and what he went through. And a lot of time we, we get stuck on the first couple of chapters and uh, we forget the dialogue between the first few chapters and the last chapter where God restores his family. Uh, but the fact is, at the end of the process, and we don't know how long it was, and I don't know, I read between nine months or so, I'm not sure about that, but Job said he had to put his hand over his mouth because he said too much. Uh, when he realized how awesome God really is. And I want to remind you tonight, folks, that I, I believe the only one who deserves to be described as awesome is God. No one, no one even comes close. And so we spent the last several months now looking at some of the marvelous, wonderful perfections of God's divine character. And so tonight we're going to take a little bit of time and uh, draw two or three conclusions uh, from that as we look at some of the things we've shared. The first observation uh, of, his, uh, of his attributes by now, I hope you realize God is incomprehensible. Now, think about that. Um, no matter how much we study, and, and there's no excuse for not studying, uh, but no, how, how, no matter how deep we go, I'm convinced in this life we're only going to scratch the surface because God is so incomprehensible. And it's, in, it's, it's understanding that, I think we need to understand how easy it is and how natural it should be for us to be lost in wonder at God's infinite greatness. I mentioned Job a moment ago. How many know Job had three friends at least? If you want to call them friends, right? And of course, then there's a fourth one showed up at the end of the book. Uh, but even though some of the things they said were not good, were not, uh, they accused Job of being a, a particular sin, though he didn't, not that he was sinless, but he wasn't being punished for that. But in spite of some of the wrong attitudes they had, they did have some insight from God. And one of Job's friends was named Zophar. And Job chapter 11, look at verse 7 through 9. Look what Zophar says. Or ask a question, actually. Job 11, verses 7 through 9. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Uh, thank you, Dan. What is Zophar telling us here? Absolutely. Now, we know, of course, he begins with a couple of questions. Uh, in verse 7, one question. And when you agree, it's rhetorical. He says, can you search enough to find God out? No, he's beyond finding out. He also makes another statement there in verse 8. He's as high, it's as high as it's heaven. Then he asks, what can you do? What's the answer? Nothing. You just can't attain that. It's deeper than hell, the lowest part, if you will. And what can you know about God? Really nothing. At least to the degree of who God is. He says the measure of it is longer than the earth. It is broader than the sea. So again, one of Job's friends may have been wrong on some of the things he said, but he was on target here. But it's exactly true about our God. And so when we think about God, first of all, we've already talked about this. How long has God been? Forever. How long will he be? Okay, so when we think about uh, turning our thoughts to God's eternity, because he is forever, from everlasting to everlasting. We think about that. We think about it as, uh, now, first of all, uh, and let me make, make sure I'm, I'm going to be careful of the words I use here. Does God have arms and legs? 
literally. What's the Bible say? God is what? He's spirit. So he's immaterial. We think about him being immaterial. We think about his omnipresence. We think about how, how almighty God is. It has to overwhelm our minds. I mean, it's just incomprehensible, like we said. It's overwhelming to our minds. Now, Zophar was right. We can't find God out by searching, not, not to the ultimate end. But because God is incomprehensible, it doesn't mean that we don't reverently, if you will, examine and through much prayer do all we can to try to grasp with our finite minds what God has so graciously revealed about himself through his word. I do want to remind you tonight that God has told us all he wants us to know through his word. Amen. But I want you to realize as well, there's something vitally important. All of us here tonight, I have no doubt about it, we're born again. We've got that walk with God. But we must continually deepen our relation with God. Because my friend, the more you love Him, the more you want to know about Him. And yes, it is incomprehensible. He is. And even though we are not able to acquire a perfect knowledge, we will be be fools to say, what's the use? Folks, there is a point. The more you know about God, the more confidence you'll have, the more you'll love Him, and the closer you will be drawn to Him. Charles Spurgeon said it well. Here's what he said. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing will magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity of God. He goes on to say the most excellent study for expanding our soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Great words. Now, let me remind you again, we will be foolish not to pursue that knowledge, not to in reverence study and learn more about our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to understand the proper study of the Godhead is indeed the best study we will ever do. It is the highest speculation, the mightiest philosophy that we can engage as a child of God is the name, the nature, and the person, and the doings, and the existence of our great God. And my question tonight is, who compares to him? No one. Remember the child, the childlike prayer, God is good, God is great. I wonder, do we really understand how great God is? Do we really understand how good our God is? And while we'll never find him out completely, folks, there is tremendous advantage, if you will, of improving our thought process as we consider deeply the divinity of our God. Make no mistake about it. It is a vast subject. Uh, deep and wide, if you will. And all of our thoughts can be lost deeply, if you will. And by the way, the more we know about God, what happens to our pride? It diminishes. Absolutely. That's the only thing we can have. And when you learn about God, we have no reason to be prideful in ourselves. A lot of times when we're studying other things and we gain a knowledge of nothing wrong with that, uh, 
no matter what you're studying, if you begin to master that and and uh, you reach a certain goal, you you sort of think, man, I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself. I've accomplished this. But folks, that'll never happen when we study God. So no matter what we learn about God, there's more to learn. Would you agree with that? No matter how close we grow to God, we can become even closer to Him. <laughs> and there may be other subjects we study. And we can say, well, become wise in this. Whatever it might be, that will never happen. Never happen when it comes to considering who God is. No matter how, how hard we try, no matter the plumb line we might use, we will never plumb the depths of who our God is. And so far of his right, we cannot see its height. And when we think about that, I agree with the psalmist, I don't have this verse, when he said, what is man? That you are mindful of him. And the more we learn about God, the more we realize how infinite he is and how finite we are. Job 26, this is not Zophar speaking in verse 14. This is Job. Look what he says. I'm going to read that verse 14. Are you in Job 26, 14? Thank you, Phyllis. Now, we read verse 14 there. And in the previous verse of that same chapter, Job made some declarations. Job realized it was God who sustained the skies over an empty space. He declared that God was the one who supports the earth on nothing. He talks about how that in the clouds in the sky, God gathers up water. He talks about how God can cover the moon with the clouds. He speaks the fact that God causes earthquakes and sea storms. And the storms He causes, He calms. Calms it by the wind, the breath of God. And He clears the sky of clouds even after a storm. And Job had made all those statements. And after all of these evidences that he talks about, of God's power over nature, he talked about things above, things below. Job says these are only parts of his ways. It literally means this is just the edge. This is just the edge. They are only small indications uh, they're the outer fringe of what God does. Now, I've never been on a uh, on a ship, uh, but I, I I read things about icebergs, and I've read. And I ho- I suppose it's true. If you see a, a, the top of an iceberg above the water, what does that usually mean? Why is that, Phyllis? Yeah. There's a bigger portion that we cannot see. I want to tell you, folks, if it's true of anybody, it's true of God. There's a portion we cannot see. And here's what we, I think, even myself, we fail to realize sometimes. Now, I confess. I'm glad Pam's not in here because you, my hearing's going. I realize that. But here's what I want you to know. All of us, we are so distant from God, we only hear a whisper. We only hear a whisper. And because of that, obviously we cannot possibly fully comprehend 
all of God's activities in his power. You ever hear of a man named Moses? Amen. You remember the time when he asked God to show him his glory? Go to Exodus 33, 19. Somebody read that, please. All right, thank you, Dan. My question real quick is, who has the right to do that? Only God. But here's what, I, what really struck me, and I underlined that in my, in my verse tonight. Moses had asked God, show me your glory. Well, verse 19 of Exodus 33 is God's answer. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. But notice this, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. Now, this is a quick comment that's so important we understand. When God talks about the name of the Lord, that involves all the collection of God's attributes. Now, think about that. God says, I'm going to show you my glory by what I do, and you'll know who I am. Now, let's take a moment here because this is something we, we, we don't do enough. What did Moses see over his lifetime from God? <clears throat> he saw him face to face. He talked with God. He was talking with a man. But think of all the things that he saw God do. Think about that. And so when, when Moses said, show me your glory, God could have said, Moses, hold on to your seats. You're going to see things you never thought you would see. Because God said, I'm going to show you my name. So think about this. This, The difference is great. The difference is vast between the knowledge of God, which we have in this life, and that which we're going to have in heaven. If it's that big, right? Amen. It's, well, you always say it's just a drop in the bucket. Let me tell you, it's a big bucket, okay? It's, it's just such a big difference. And again, we're so far away from God, it's just a whisper. And yet, the knowledge we have now, don't undervalue it. It is precious. It is wonderful. And even though it's not a perfect knowledge, we will have. So don't undervalue that knowledge. But also I want to warn us that the knowledge we're going to have then, be careful and don't magnify it above reality. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Thank you, Phyllis. Now, i got to tell you, I mentioned earlier, this, this lesson has really spoke to my heart. And you have a question, Dan? I thought I, you, I thought your lips moved. Apologize, brother. Let me ask you a question tonight. How many true gods are there? One. Now, without a doubt, and thanks for reading that verse a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. The Bible says there's going to come a day. We're not going to look through a mirror anymore. But we're going to see face to face. There will be a day that we know even as we are known. But hold on here. If we're not careful, I think we take that verse too far. Now again, how many gods are there? One. How many gods will there ever be? One. Okay? So understand this. And I I mean, even, uh, I guess it was Monday when I went back through this, I had to stop for a minute. 
because God is so awesome. He's so past finding out. And so, yes, we're going to see things better. And, yes, we know in part now, we're going to know more then. But whatever we do, don't infer from that verse that there'll come a time when we will know God as fully as He knows us. Let that sink in. Do it again. He does. I agree with you. Because if we could know God as good as He knows us, what does that make us? God. How many gods are there? Just one. Only one. Because the fact that God is God alone. Now, I don't want to shock you. We've been teaching on Sunday for the last few weeks. Paul's been addressing false teachers. How many know there are false teachers today? What would you say, Bill? A lot of them. And there are some who teach that we become gods. Supposedly Christian teachers. That's a lie from the devil and it smells like smoke. We're not gonna, that's not gonna happen. So, yes, we're gonna have a glorified body. How many are glad for that? Amen. <laughs> Amen, yeah. Uh, I sent, went to see Faye Horns today. She's doing a little better. And we got to t- got to talking on a, on a bad subject, our bodies. And how many know the older you get, I'm, I'm not even going to talk to you no more, Paul, but the older you get, what happens? <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Both Pauls. I should have clarified that, okay. That's true. But one day we're going to have that glorified body. But it doesn't mean that our glorified body is going to be a divine body. There is something completely different about that. Now again, we're preaching on heaven on Sunday nights, and I have to confess, there are a lot of things about heaven I don't know. There are things about heaven Jason that thinks I'm confused on. And uh, I, I heard a guy today, I, I, I kind of like that, what he said. He said, it doesn't matter when people disagree with me, they have a right to be wrong if they want to. Okay? But the fact of the matter, there's a lot we don't know. And I, and I confess that. But understand, and, and unless I'm misreading something, or, and I, I took some time to think about this even this week, even in our glorified bodies, we will still be finite creatures. How many gods are there? Just one. How many will there ever be? Just one. Yeah. And because of that, we will never be able to fully comprehend the infinite God. Now, again, I'm trying to wrap my mind around some of what I'm about to say because I took some time to think about this. I mentioned a moment ago, and by the way, from John uh, Gospel, when he, when he spoke to the woman at the well, and uh, he was very emphatic. He said, God is spirit. Now, I know our English version says God is a spirit, but there is no article in the Greek. God is spirit. What does that mean? He's spirit, so he's not flesh. So, again, I read this from a theologian, and I agree with this. And so, that being said, I know we're going to see God, but it has to be with the eye of the mind, or our spirit, whatever. Because God is spirit today, 
What will it be tomorrow? What will it be a million years from now? Spirit, he doesn't change. He doesn't change. So he will always be invisible to the bodily eye. But understand, there's going to come a time, and I don't know how God worked this out. There's going to come a time when we will be able to see him more clearer than we ever could by reason or ever could by faith. And by the way, if we're going to please God, we must have what? Faith. And we're going to see him even more extensively than all his works through the years and through the scriptures and through the ages has ever revealed God to us. Now, don't ask me how. I don't know that. But I know one thing. When I get to heaven, God's still going to be spirit, but I'll see him better then than I ever have. Better then than I ever have. I guess I need to ask a question here. How long is heaven going to be? Forever. And... uh I wonder how many people wonder or ask the question, well, won't it get boring in heaven? Not for, not for a minute. We're going to spend an eternity learning more about God, worshiping God, knowing more about Him. And yes, we will have a better, a greater capacity to know God in a different way than we ever have in this world through anything that God revealed to us. But our minds will never be so enlarged that we're capable of grasping that all at once or in detail how excellent his name really is. And I, I for one, believe we're going to spend eternity still in awe of our God. He is so magnificent. Now, for us to completely comprehend God's infinite perfection, we would have to become infinite ourselves and then we would be God. That is never going to happen. So when we get to heaven, our knowledge is going to be greater than it is now, far greater. But I still believe, since we are not God, there's only one God, That tells me that my knowledge in heaven will also be partial. But here's what I want you to know. And here's the part I love. Our happiness will be complete. Amen. It's going to be complete. Even though our knowledge of God is partial. And our happiness will be complete because our knowledge is going to be perfect in this sense. Our knowledge will be adequate, if you will, for our capacity. What we're able to contain ourselves. But also understand, we will never exhaust the vastness of our God. Folks, He is so incomprehensible. He is so awesome. And again, you know, I'm I'm trying to contemplate some things here when I think about who God is and who I am, who we are, how that we're not God, there's only one God. So I I think the probability here that our knowledge and our growth of God and our comprehension of God is going to be progressive It's going to continue to grow throughout eternity. And I think as that knowledge grows, our blessedness is going to increase. And, uh, but it'll never reach a point. That progressive knowledge we're going to have where we'll come to a time there'll be nothing else to be discovered. And I want to tell you something, folks. 
when we've been there 10,000 years or 10 million years, there will still be an incomprehensible God. He is so, so awesome. So one of the first observations I want to make tonight from what we studied, God is incomprehensible. Second of all, what we've learned so far about God, God is an all-sufficient being. What does that mean? I'm sorry, say it again. Does he need anything? But he needs me? Yeah. He doesn't need me, doesn't need you, doesn't need anything. But he's chosen for us to be a part of his family. Now, uh, again, how long has God been around? Forever. So we conclude because of that, by faith, that he is the first of beings. My question would be, who who existed before God? No one. So he's the first of beings. And uh, because of that, he cannot receive anything from another. He cannot be limited by a power of another. And because he is infinite, he is possessed of all possible perfection. Now again, how perfect is God? Yeah. It can't be improved on, if you will. Now, again, I, I, we teach and believe the Bible teaches a, a trinity, the triune God. But there was a time the triune God was all by himself. I don't know how long. I have, the Bible doesn't tell me that. But he was the first being. He was all to himself. His understanding, his love, his energies... They found an adequate object in himself. Because what does God need? Nothing. Who does God need? Nothing. If he needed anything, if he had not been independent, he would not be God. He is an all-sufficient Being, he needs no one or anything. Colossians chapter 1, anybody got verse 16, want to read it? Thank you, Phyllis. I like what Paul wrote. All things were not just created by him, who they're created created for? For himself. He created all things, and that was for himself. So let me ask you a question. Did God wake up one morning and say, Oh, wait a minute, I need a world? Huh? No. No. You know, it wasn't to supply something he lacked. But what did God lack? Nothing. But what's interesting, God had a desire, I believe, to communicate life and happiness to angels and to men and to give them a vision of his glory. They're created by him and for him. Job chapter 22, look at verses 2 and 3. Thank you, Dan. Now, again, we're reading some rhetorical questions here. Now, remember I mentioned a little while ago, uh, there are things in life we can study and learn about and 
uh, gain some skills and, uh, and say, you know what, I've accomplished this, be a little proud of that. But that's okay. Just don't get, take it over, overboard, if you will. But you never learn much about God that you can be proud of that. But the question here is, okay, so what can I do that's going to profit God? Nothing. What can I do to make God any wiser than He is? Nothing. And that's what the question here is. Uh, okay, suppose I say, you know what, I'm going to be gooder. Is that a word? How about better? Today, tomorrow than was today. How's that going to help God out? Now, how's it going to change God? Not one bit. Doesn't affect God either way. In fact, God doesn't gain anything if we're righteous. And what does he lose if we're not? Nothing. It doesn't affect God. Now, it is true that God demands our allegiance. God does demand our services of those he created. But no matter what we do, no matter what we attain in this life, even for God, it doesn't affect him or benefit him in any way. Because everything we do comes back and helps us for God's glory. (laughs) So he will use us, people, as a means to accomplish his ends. But not because he doesn't have enough power to do it himself. But a lot of times he does it to display his power through feeble instruments. When Paul wrote the church at Corinth, and I don't have this in our notes tonight, but there were some who said, you know what, I'm better than you are because I was baptized by this person. I'm of Apollos or I'm of Peter. Some said they were of Paul. But Paul goes on to say, we're just clay vessels. We're just empty vessels in the hands of of God. And so it's God's power being shown through those empty, broken vessels. And it comes back and abounds in our life. And so because God is all-sufficient, that makes Him the supreme object that we ought to spend our time in pursuit of. God is truly an awesome God. And if we're going to find true happiness, and by the way, in Sunday school Sunday morning, we'll be talking about uh, godliness and contentment. But if we're going to find true happiness, we're only going to find it in the enjoyment of God. Now think about that. In the enjoyment of God. His favor is life. God is so good to us. His loving kindness, the Bible says, is better than life. The all-sufficient being. Lamentations 3, look at verse 24. Thank you, Jason. Who's writing this? Jeremiah, what has happened recently? Jerusalem has been destroyed. Judah has gone down the tubes. Nothing left. And Jeremiah says, the Lord is my portion. Now, do you know why Jeremiah didn't lose hope? Because his hope wasn't in Jerusalem. His hope's in who? In the Lord. We will never, ever try find true happiness until we learn to enjoy God. When we think about how we perceive God's love, perceive God's grace, His glory, they should be the highest object of our desire, but also they will also be the fountain of our highest expectation. That's where we find true enjoyment. Psalm 4, verses 6 and 7.
Amen. Now, isn't it true a lot of times we look for things in life to bring us happiness? And the psalmist said, wait a minute. Who's really going to show us anything that's good? And he talks about how God is able to lift us up, to encourage us, if you will, and put gladness in our hearts even more than a bountiful crop will. And folks, I want to tell you, my heart goes after those who do not know Christ because they're always looking for something to satisfy that longing in their heart and they're always looking in the wrong places. Look what Habakkuk said, Habakkuk 3, verse 17 and 18. Amen. Let's admit it, verse 17 is not a very good verse, is it? And the fact is, if everything is gone, if I have nothing to fall back on in this world, if I lose all that I have, I'm still going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. So my first observation tonight is, God is incomprehensible. My second observation is, God is an all-sufficient being. The third thing is, God is a sovereign of uh, the universe. What does that mean? What do you mean, Dan? Yeah, but I want to talk to his boss. Yeah. Have you ever you ever called somebody and got a hold of it and you say, Hey, let me talk to your supervisor? What if you told what if you told God that? He has none, right, Dan? Yeah, you got him. He's on the phone right now, right? You've got him. You can't go any higher. <laughs> now, also understand, and I'm quoting from a theologian, don't know him. His name is John, uh, John Dick. And here's what he says. No dominion is so absolute as that which is founded on creation. He who might not have made anything had the right to make all things according to his own pleasure. Is that true or what? Now keep it in mind, I like what he says. Talking about creation. And why did God make anything? Because he wanted to. Because he could. Did he have to? No. He wasn't obligated to do that. None at all. So since he chose to create, how and what could he create? Whatever he wanted. Why? He's the absolute sovereign. Who does God answer to? No one. Who will he ever answer to? No one. It's interesting. I think about God and how awesome He is. And when we think about how He exercised His uncontrolled power, He made some parts of creation out of inanimate matter. Some were more cultured and refined. Some of His creation are distinguished by qualities. but all according to God's design. He who didn't have to make anything made anything he wanted how he wanted. Some of these things he created, he gave organization. Some he made susceptible to growth and expansion. And to you and I, he breathed the life of breath into us. What an amazing God. So, not only to give existence to some, but to some he gave conscience, conscious existence. He gave us organs of sense and 
a self-motive power. All because he could and because he wanted to. He's given us the gift of reason. Isn't that good? He's given us an immortal spirit. And he's done it because he could. He is absolutely sovereign. So my question is, over the world he created, over everything that's in the world that he created, who holds the scepter of omnipotence? God himself. We have a couple of examples of some men in the Bible. Uh, one was King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that guy? What, what did he used to think about himself until God changed his life? Huh? Yeah. I mean, if you ask Nebuchadnezzar who the man was, who did he say? You're looking at him. I'm the one. But in Daniel 4, something happened. Daniel 4. Look at verse 35 and th- 34 and 35. Now, by the way, this is the king who had a vision. Remember that vision of that, actually, monstrosity of a thing? But it had a head of gold. And, and Daniel told him who that head of gold represented, who to represent. Nebuchadnezzar, right? So what do you think Nebuchadnezzar thought about that? Yeah, huh? Ah, look, at, that's who I am. And every kingdom after was weaker. He made an image. And he said, anybody doesn't bow down at the sound of music, so what can happen to him? Yeah. And God intervened there. And in chapter 4, God showed Nebuchadnezzar who was sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar thought he wielded the power, but God said, no, you don't. I do. And Nebuchadnezzar finally confessed, this king who had sought honor and glory for himself, he came to a time in his life, he acknowledged that the Most High God lives forever. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged God's sovereign authority. By the way, he also acknowledged God's irresistible will. Because God does as he pleases. With the powers of heaven, the people of earth, And Nebuchadnezzar also confessed that he and mankind has to answer to God. Does God have to answer to man? No. And nobody, he said, can stop God. And nobody has a right to question him. Another king you know about, that's King uh, Darius. I know some pronounce it Darius. uh, And I I read both are accessible. I don't know how it can be, but I'll go with that. Uh, Chapter 6, verse... Uh, of Daniel, verse 26. So even King Darius confessed, how long is God's kingdom? It's forever. His kingdom is going to last forever. Notice also in chapter 7, in verse 14 and verse 27, the vision Daniel had of God's kingdom.
Read somebody read verse twenty seven, please. Amen. God is sovereign. He is incomprehensible. He is a self-sufficient being. So my question is this. What right do we have? That's it. Only that. We never can lose sight of God's moral perfection. He is just. He is good all the time. Everything he does is always right. But I'll understand, he also exercises his sovereignty only according to his own choices. He doesn't ask anyone. Romans 9, verse 15. Amen. So let me leave you with this thought tonight. Whoever we are, our life and everything is held at God's disposal. God does what? Whatever He wants. But the great news is to you and I as Christians, He is our tender Father. Aren't you glad for that tonight? But to those who are rebellious, the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. First Timothy 1.17. And boy, I tell you, what a, what a doxology Paul gives. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. That is our God, and we've just scratched the surface. Thank you, Lord, for this time of our study. Let's take a few.